As you remain standing, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. An easy way to get there would be to turn to the middle of your Bibles, which almost surely will put you in Psalms, and you just go one book to the left. The book of Job is where we turn tonight to begin a series of studies in our evening service through this wonderful Old Testament book. And tonight, all we want to do is meet this man named Job by looking at the first five verses of of chapter one. So... Let me read those verses for us and then pray for our study and we'll begin together. So here now, as God speaks to you once again through his pure and perfect word. There was a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a fast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for your servant named Job, for his steadfastness, his faithfulness, his patience in the midst of trial and suffering, and as we turn our attention to your work through him, we pray that in the coming weeks you might fix our gaze upon Jesus Christ, that faithful sufferer who took the penalty that our sin deserved, that you might even in the midst of whatever suffering we face these days or these coming months, might too be able to bless your name, and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It was on June 13th, 1991, that 40,000 spectators were gathered at Hazeltine National, which is a golf course for the U.S. Open that year. And as the skies began to darken during the day and the thunder began to rumble, it became quite clear that the storm was coming. And it wasn't just coming, it was coming quickly. And so these thousands of spectators began to take refuge at whatever kind of shelter they could find. Twelve in particular took refuge under this rather large and tall willow tree when all of a sudden a lightning bolt came out of the sky, split that tree, and felled all twelve people there. Six got up quite quickly, dazed and confused. Another five went to the hospital injured. And one man, a 27-year-old man, he lay dead with his hands in his pocket. And I tell you that because when you come to the book of Job, especially these first five verses... You come to a man that our text says is the tallest tree, spiritually speaking, prosperity-wise, in all the land. And soon enough, as many of you surely know, there is going to be a lightning strike of God's sovereignty that brings suffering in this man's life. And the question is going to be, can Job get up from that strike of suffering? And so what you need to know is that we're coming to a book These subsequent weeks and months, this book of Job that has had a long, hallowed, and cherished place in Christian history, 
Some of the more famous parts of preaching through the book of Job belongs to our heritage in centuries past. For example, it was a theologian in Scotland named George Hutchison who lectured 316 times on the 42 chapters that ensue in Job. There's another Puritan preacher named Joseph Carlyle that began preaching on Job and didn't stop till some 23 years later. That'd be akin children to the children that we baptized just a few weeks ago. And it won't be until they're well out of the house, graduated from college, that Pastor Stone finally gets through Job. And there's that much truth, genuinely speaking, that you can squeeze out of this wonderful book. But we're going to, of course, go much faster, I trust, through our studies. Certainly after tonight, the speed and velocity will pick up quite noticeably as we'll spend something like 14 weeks looking at all of these chapters. And what we're meant to see tonight in the first five verses is Job's character. It's an introduction to Job that is little more than showing us his prosperity and his piety. That's all we're meant to see tonight. Job's prosperity and Job's piety. We're we're meant to know who is this man That is suddenly going to fall into this incredible tragedy. Upon whom is going to fall this incredible calamity. And so what we're meant to see is his character and its sincerity and its integrity. And we'll show ourselves, the text will show us along the way tonight, just why it's so necessary for us to see Job for who he is according to God's eyes. So there's just three simple things that we're going to walk through tonight in our introduction to Job. The first of which is his righteousness. Secondly, we'll see his blessedness before turning to his watchfulness in verse 4 and 5. So his righteousness, notice how verse 1 begins. Again, it says there was a man in the land. It has this story-like quality to it, doesn't it? This uh, original language you could even translate as something like, there a man was. It's as though, kids, you're kind of sitting around a fire with your grandfather saying, tell us a story. Well, there was a man in the land of Uts, or as Texans would say, Uz, (laughs) whose name was Job. We don't know anything about this land of Uts, Uz, It's, by all scholarly opinion, somewhere near modern-day Jordan. It's no doubt east of the promised land of Canaan. And that we know little about it is actually quite necessary for us to see because there are certain elements to this story of Job that we don't get specificity, probably because we're meant to see the universality of its application to the ordinary human experience. Job himself would have been a man that belonged to the patriarchal age, and probably was something of a contemporary of Abraham. It's why if you've ever read through, you know, reading through the Bible in a year plan, but a chronological reading plan, normally in and around Genesis chapter 12, that plan will pivot to have you read the story of Job because he belongs to that age, the earliest age in biblical history. And what we're meant to see right from the outset, you'll notice we're given four pillars of his piety. First, that he is a man who is blameless. He's blameless. Now, kids, of course, that doesn't mean that he was perfect. It doesn't mean that he never sinned. This is the way the Old Testament in particular thinks about a man or a person, a woman, a child, who is full of sincerity and integrity in their spiritual life. That there is this noticeable quality to their godliness and holiness, unimpeachable in its reputation, which is why he goes on to say he's not just blameless, but secondly, he's said to be upright, 
Uh, that's a word you could translate as just straight. You know, in matters of justice, in matters of, of fairness, this is a man that, that speaks straight. He deals with you straight according to the law of the land. Also, he's a man who feared God. Feared God. If you've been with us in the last few months when we've been walking through the Psalms of Ascent, we came to this idea of fearing God in a few significant portions of that part of the Psalter and said it's this almost mysterious and profound mix of what it means to have awestruck reverence before God, certainly love and delight in God, while at the same time knowing the terror that belongs to standing in God's presence. It's a facet of spirituality and a part of sincere piety that old theologians have called the soul of godliness, what it means to fear God. And fourthly and finally, we're, we're informed that Job turned away from evil. Actually, there's a link even there to what it means to fear God. You can see this particularly in Proverbs, this way of wisdom, this way of walking before the Lord with skill in godliness, that if you fear God, that's ordinarily going to mean you're going to turn away from evil. So Job is a man that's pictured here and is portrayed here before our attention as a man who is full of sincerity, integrity. He's blameless and upright in his piety. And the reason why it's so necessary for you to see, according to verse 1, Job's righteousness is you can just link it to that first pillar. He's blameless. That becomes the genuine testing ground. In some ways, the genuine test that's going to belong to this book. Because if you just glance into what we'll see, Lord willing, in two weeks' time, this, this first kind of scene in the heavenly courtroom with Satan and God, what we're told, you'll notice in verse 8, as the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So that's God's perspective on Job's piety. But the reason it's important to see that tonight is because when he gets to the conversations with all of his counselor friends, the true debate is going to be, is he really blameless? Because they're going to say, such suffering would not have come upon your life if you were indeed blameless. But we know right from the very first verse, Job is blameless. Important to keep in the back of your mind for what we're going to see at the end tonight. Now you'll notice, of course, also his blessedness. Verse 2, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female servants, and or female donkeys, and very many servants. Now, kids, if you can look at just what we're told there in verse 2 and 3. Let's do a little math equation for a second. Well, what's 7 plus 3? 10. What's 7,000 plus 3,000? Well, 10,000. What's 500 plus 500? Well, it's 1,000. And if you're good with math, you notice that we're having multiples of 10 show up related to Job's Blessedness related to Job's prosperity. In that ancient Hebrew culture, ten was this number of completeness. Not just were seven and three significant in a similar way, but added together, what you see is all of these numbers, all of his possessions, all of his prosperity is actually structured in such a way that you would know, as verse 3 says at the end, he was the greatest of all the people of the East. And again, this is part of the battleground that's going to belong to Satan's work in Job's life. Because Satan's going to come along the way. God says, have you considered Job? And Satan evidently says, well, yeah, I have. 
You know, I know all of his blessedness. I know all of his riches. I know all of his wealth. And it's no big deal that Job praises you. It's no big deal that Job is blameless before you. It's no big deal that Job is righteous in you. Because everyone would be righteous if they were blessed in such a way, is what Satan is going to say. Thus, as we'll see soon enough, well, let me take away all of his wealth, and he's going to curse your name. Well, what we're going to find out along the way is, yes, according to even Satan himself, it's quite easy for people to be righteous in a season of blessedness. The key question of Job, though, is can you still be righteous when life is only barrenness and bitterness? And Satan, of course, is going to say, absolutely not. And God's going to say, absolutely That's how good I am. If you take away everything, I am still enough for even a suffering, miserable man to say, I am worthy of all his blessing. So you see, of course, his righteousness. And we see his blessedness. And then we notice in verse 4 and 5, his watchfulness. His watchfulness. You know, there are normal things that kind of strike parents when they're driving around with young children, such as we so often do. And uh, one of them is how they, you know, will notice certain landmarks along the way with our typical routes going to and from here and there, games, church, so on and so forth. And uh, usually every Sunday when we're driving uh, to the church, there's something of a competition that seems to exist between the youngest of children. And it's a, a competition to see who can see the steeple first. You know, on our normal route, we kind of turn back going west, and we're on the street. The kids notice that's the street where you can first see the steeple. And there's enough of a competition that goes on, it seems like, the younger ones, that they'll start saying they see the steeple before. We know, of course, you know, they can't see the steeple. But the point is, is that there's this sight in mind that signals something else, right? The steeple represents, of course, we're, we're coming to church, And what we're going to see now in verse 4 and 5 is there is this steeple-like quality to Job's spirituality, his watchfulness. Because it's almost as though, yes, of course, Satan even himself is aware of Job's blessedness, saying, well, that's the only reason why he's righteous before God. But it's as though he wants to forget altogether what we're told in verse 4 and 5, that Job is a man with this steeple-like quality signaling for us the sincerity of his piety, that he's a man of Watchfulness. For look at what we're told, verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. Now, if you pause right there, kids almost in all certainty, that means on his birthday. So whenever one of the seven sons would have a birthday, there'd be a special celebration. And all the family would gather together. And you notice verse 4 tells us they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And in the midst of this picture and this scene of of family harmony, uh, we get a sense of his godly anxiety, that being Job's godly anxiety towards the spirituality of his children. Because I want you to see three things in verse 5 about Job's watchfulness. The first of which, he watches urgently. You see, and when the course of the feast, I'm sorry, the days of the feast had run their course, verse 5, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning. And so what Job is doing in the course of these birthday feasts and festival, he is wanting to rise right from the get-go, urgently and zealously, 
watching over the quality of his children, the spirituality of his children, the obedience or lack thereof of his children, because he's not just watching urgently. You see, as the text continues, he's watching spiritually. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Why? Well, Job says, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So he's functioning, isn't he, as a priest here in the family. He's recognizing, because he's not there evidently in these birthday celebrations, that there could be some degree of sin that's taken place, and he wanting to be a godly priest in his household. This is, of course, before the institution of the Old Testament priesthood, so it's very normal in the patriarchal times for a man of the house to do these kind of things. He's going to function as a mediator in many ways, making atonement, paying the price for the sins that may have possibly been committed when this festivity was going on. So isn't it again telling us, even from the outset of Scripture, the earliest realities of biblical history, that there has to be blood to cover sin. As the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. As a kid, you can think about even how burnt offerings were sacrificed. Of course, you would have an animal of a varying size. You'd have an animal that would ordinarily, of course, if it was larger, it would be cut up in a very specific way and then it was plunged upon an altar where it was going to be consumed with fire. And that fire is significant because the fire itself, it would symbolize God's holiness, His, his judgment and His righteousness that would consume sin if there wasn't a blood offering for sin. And so it's an important point to recognize even here tonight that you might be here. You might be present and have sinned. And has there been blood that's covered that sin? Well, what Scripture always tells us is that blood will cover sin one day. It can be your blood covering it in judgment and punishment, such as the terror of God's wrath against sin. But if it's the perfect, precious blood of Jesus Christ, who is the once and for all final sacrifice, the final and perfect substitute for sin, what you'll find is that your sin is forgiven, that it's Washed away. So he's watching urgently. He's watching spiritually. You see even at the end of verse 5, thus Job did continually. It's right for us to say he watched constantly. And how about your own heart? How about your own life and its watchfulness over the spiritual condition of your children? Maybe even your grandchildren. Certainly, perhaps for most of us in here tonight, it's most principally our own spiritual condition before the Lord? Are you watching urgently and spiritually and and constantly? Uh, You may know that there are certain segments of even the Christian church today that makes a whole lot out of verse 5, calling fathers to be priests within the home. And that's certainly misguided, although the impetus is right insofar as a man is to lead spiritually in the home, watching and encouraging and guiding his children That they too might be found blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So this is this man named Job. He's righteous, he's blessed, and he's always watching. There was a period of time when I was a college-aged student that I seemed to, it felt like every quarter, I would get a jury duty summons. 
And you know, if you ever walked out to the mailbox and you've pulled out some sort of envelope and you've opened it and you realized, oh no, I've got, I've got jury duty. Uh, perhaps the first question or first thought that comes to mind is something of, oh no, I mean, I'd rather not be doing this. And maybe secondly, if you're anything like me at the time, the question was, is there any way I can get out of it? You know, and at the time, if you were a college student, you could get out of any jury summons that came your way. And it's hardship and it's perhaps difficulty, even frustration. Can you get out of it? There are men, of course, in our church that belonged to the military in decades past. And there was a draft and there was a wonder, wasn't there? Many of their loved ones. Is there any way that he can get out of it? Is there any way that he can be exempt from it? And what you're meant to see, really, in its purest form from Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is this simple truth on which I want to meditate for the final few minutes with you tonight, is that faithfulness to God does not exempt you from suffering. That's what you're meant to see from this first portrait of Job. Faithfulness to God does not exempt you from suffering. Because it's true that when we live the godly life in Christ Jesus, suffering and hardship is going to come along the way. It's true in a church like our own that confesses that God indeed reigns sovereign over all things, including trials and tribulations, sufferings and sorrow. It can so often be the most difficult thing, genuinely, spiritually hard, for a believer to reconcile suffering with God's sovereignty. And underlying so much of that struggle so often is a simple question that we always ask, why? But underlying even that question itself is so often, why me? Because whether we're wanting to admit it or not, there's this sense of, I didn't deserve this. Or there's a wondering, what did I do to deserve this? And Job is here to tell us, certainly from the very beginning, because it's utterly necessary to see this for the rest of the conversations in the book, that Job hasn't done anything to deserve this suffering. Job never gets to find that out. He knows it to his rock-bottom core. It's why he's going to often interact with his friends the way he's going to. But it's significant for you to see tonight that suffering might come your way. And you've done nothing to deserve it. You might be faithful to God, obedient to God, blameless before God. And in no way does it exempt you from suffering. Because what God is going to do, at least in this story itself, he means for Job to preach a cosmic sermon to the heavenly council, even to our hearts as well, to know that when every single thing is stripped away, faithful sufferers still worship the Lord because he is sufficient for all their joy and delight, even in the hardship. And so it may be hard to feel like, it may be hard to reckon with the reality that faithfulness to God doesn't exempt you from suffering. But there's gospel truth in it, isn't there? Because if faithfulness to God exempted anyone from suffering, there would be no salvation, would there? Because, of course, we have a Savior who is utterly faithful to every jot and tittle of God's law. Faithfulness and obedient in every single way, and yet he was made to suffer in a way that none of us ever would. And that suffering would bring our salvation. So, yes, can you, can you be righteous in the midst of blessedness? Well, yes, you can. Job's here to ask a different question. Can you be righteous in the midst of undeserved barrenness, bitterness, suffering, and sorrow? Pointing us, of course, to the faithful sufferer himself, Jesus Christ, saying, yes, indeed, you can. For God is sovereign over all of your suffering in his kindness and his goodness. Let's pray together.
Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is full of goodness and grace, even in the midst of your incomprehensibility and mystery that so often can confound us, that can confuse us. Help us as we continue our studies in Job to rejoice ever anew, knowing that you are good, that your providence, even when it seems to frown upon us, it hides a kind smile, for you're always working things out for our good. Grow us, we pray, in blamelessness. And grow us, we pray, in uprightness of fearing you and turning away from evil. Help us to fix our gaze upon that faithful sufferer, our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.